Hi, I'm Lee Keough, Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome you to our conference podcast series. Today's program, which took place April 1st in Trenton, is entitled New Jersey's Hidden Water Crisis. Roundtable speakers include Dan Kennedy, Assistant Commissioner, Water Resources Management, New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, Dennis Dahl, Chairman, President, and CEO of Middlesex Water Company, Peggy Gallows, Executive Director of the Association of Environmental Authorities of New Jersey, and Daniel Van Abs, Associate Professor of Practice for Water, Society, and Environment at the Rutgers School of Environmental and Biological Sciences. Participants discuss the aging water infrastructure in New Jersey, how it's leading to contaminants in our water, including lead, and how much water is wasted due to leakage even before it gets to the customers. The answer is to upgrade our systems, but no one realistically knows the price tag and whether investor-owned or publicly-owned water systems are doing a better job of maintenance. Our sponsors of the program today are the Association of Environmental Authorities, Middlesex Water Company, New Jersey American Water, and the William Penn Foundation. Well, good morning. My name is Lee Keough. I'm the editor-in-chief of NJ Spotlight. And for those of you who don't know NJ Spotlight, somebody was ju- I was just talking to earlier was not as familiar with us as some of you are. Um, we've been in uh, business for about five and a half, almost six years now, and we are a nonprofit news online news site. Um, we do uh, we publish every five days a week. Our primary areas of coverage are. Um, Education, energy and the environment, healthcare, public finance, and we cover basically most issues in Trenton. We we policy is is our us, okay? So um, and we do an, a number of these things like roundtables. So thank you for being here today. Um, we uh, about every two months we find a subject that we think uh, people want to hear and talk about and have. A, bring people together like this. We also do some webinars online. And so look for those. Those are, those are really um, interesting uh, topic. We try to take interesting topics with those as well. We're lucky today because uh, we have a, well, uh, lucky, not so lucky, I don't know. Um, we have a very hot topic, which is uh, the hidden water crisis. With all the news these days about the lead in the water, I think today we have a map. I, I hope you take a look at it on the site. It um, shows that the lead issue is not an issue that is uh, necessarily an urban issue. It's uh, throughout the state. And the numbers are kind of shocking how many children have been tested for or high level elevations. But we're going to talk about um, a bunch of this, including the um, infrastructure today. I wanted to uh, thank our sponsors, uh, the, uh, the AEA, which, um, what is this, the Association of Environmental Authorities, um, Middlesex Water Company, New Jersey American Water, William Penn, the William Penn Foundation, which underwrites most of our water coverage, we want to thank them, and our media sponsor, Jersey Water Works. So I'm going to introduce Tom Johnson. He covers um, the energy and the environment for us, and he knows this issue backwards and forwards, so he'll introduce the panel. Thank you. Thanks, Lee, and welcome, everybody, and thanks for coming. Um, we have a great panel. And it, as Lee mentioned, it's a pretty hot topic uh, because of uh, 
lead being discovered in some of the public school systems. But the problem is uh, much more diverse, as our panelists will explain uh, later. And uh, without further ado, I'll uh, introduce them. Our first speaker will be Dan Kennedy, who's assisting commissioner for the Department of Environmental Protection. I think most people here know him. Um, he also was at the state planning office, and he's been on panels before, and he's an uh, excellent presenter. And uh, why don't you kick it off, Dan? Well, thank you, uh, Tom. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for uh, creating this opportunity in New Jersey Spotlight to talk about this important um, series of issues. Um, so I, I'm going to take the approach of trying to stay a little higher level, and I will certainly get and touch on the, the, the issue with uh, lead. Nation, it's a nationwide issue, not just an issue in New Jersey, and uh, I will touch on lead, but I'm going to start at a couple thousand feet um, and, and get to lead. Um, you know, there are clearly some smaller water and wastewater systems in Jersey that are facing uh, significant challenges and issues, and the solution to those uh, challenges are not cookie cutter uh, and depend on a blend of the right technical and managerial solutions combined with sufficient investment um, to overcome them. And none of these challenges has arose overnight, uh, although um, the awareness on certain issues seems to be coming fast and furious on, on issues. And uh, my day at DEP can change dramatically from the time I walk in the door to the time I leave the building on issues that pop up. Uh, but none of these challenges that we're facing are, are, uh, uh, came to us overnight, and none of the solutions uh, will be solved on that time frame either. There are some great people uh, and great managers in the water industry in New Jersey. There's some great folks at the DEP that work on these water issues. We've got an amazing amount of um, uh, talent uh, at the department, uh, historic knowledge and passion and desire for these issues, both in the private and public sector, that uh, I think is a, a big part of the, the way we're going to overcome many of these challenges. And the problem, as you know, and as the title of this uh, session uh, cites properly, is that issues around water are largely hidden. Um, they are underground, and only when something goes wrong uh, do folks start to seriously uh, pay attention in the public realm should rest assured to know that um, behind the scenes, when the public, when it's not in the headlines and when the public isn't focused on water issues, um, there's a lot of work being done at the department and with our water systems to ensure that issues do not pop up. Um, it, there's a high level of transparency in New Jersey and the results of water testing that take place around our water systems and a high level of accountability um, when things aren't going as they should. Um, so even when the, the water issue is, isn't in the papers, we certainly have a high level of attention. Uh, so the goal at the big picture here at DEP, the goal is to ensure that the systems that are having challenges overcome them in short order and to ensure that we've got protections and opportunities in place to ensure that the systems that are not in anywhere near a crisis uh, avoid it. Any asset, any piece of infrastructure in any industry, public or private, will get into a crisis mode if you don't pay attention to it. Water industry is no different. Uh, so it's our job uh, together uh, between the industry uh, and the regulators uh, and the investors in our infrastructure to ensure that um, we maintain um, a significant uh, amount of uh, quality of service and uh, quality of water to ensure that um, we're meeting standards and exceeding standards. 
There's four areas um, that I want to talk to you about that uh, range from planning, science, regulation, and investment. Uh, all that fall within underneath my uh, general authorities as commissioner of the DEP. I'm not going to do a deep dive on any of these because time does not suffice uh, to do that today. And as respect for my fellow panelists, I want to make sure that they have an equal opportunity to share their perspective. Um, these four areas are very critical. And before um, uh, I took the helm at the, uh, the DEP in this role, Commissioner Martin brought all these roles together, um, which was a management move that I thought really set the baseline for a lot of progress in the, uh, the water industry right now. Um, so my perspective, these four uh, issues are needed to be focused on, not just now, but in long into the future, to ensure that we don't get into more challenging situations. Uh, the first is asset management and strategy. Uh, when we say asset management, that's a term that is thrown around often. Um, so let me just, in simple terms, say that it means to us uh, making sure that all the water systems in the state have a proper inventory of their assets, some sort of analysis of the criticality of those assets, uh, leading to long-term investment strategies that rely on the realities of today is that we're not going to go back into a time machine. We're not going to get back in the 70s and 80s when there was a grants being offered at the federal level uh, to solve all of our problems. We're going to be in a loan environment. Uh, we offer very attractive loans through the Environmental Infrastructure Trust which is a program that you are all aware of and it's co-managed by the EIT and the DEP from a technical perspective. But the needs of maintaining and updating aging infrastructure certainly is not a new topic. New Jersey is, a, is an older state, right? So we have older infrastructure. We have some of the oldest cities in America and therefore as a result, we have some of the oldest pipes, oldest treatment plants and some of the oldest buildings in the country. Um, not just in our cities, but in some of our hinterlands. I live in an in a, in a area of the state that's not a city, um, in a Bordentown city. It's a small little a village. Um, and we go back over 300 years. So it, it's not just the, the urban centers that are old, but we have some very smaller scaled suburban communities and city center type areas that are certainly have aged infrastructure that, um, that certainly need attention as well. Not to pick on my, my uh, home city, we, our, our locals do a really good job with our infrastructure. Um, but it's just to show you that this does not break evenly on an urban, suburban, rural divide. There are challenges throughout the state and it doesn't, it's not as easy as you may think uh, to just say it's, we have old infrastructure in our cities. Um, to date, we've posted asset management guidance. Um, we've incorporated requirements of our CSO permits for asset management. We've offered set aside through our environmental infrastructure trust for asset management. And we walk with, worked with industry association groups to conduct a survey that we will be releasing the results of that was very informative. And that survey tells us that, you know, these water systems are really starting to embrace the principles of asset management. Um, their m majority of systems are really well underway or completed their inventory. And as time goes on, they're going to be prioritizing the assets that are ripe for investment and uh, setting up long-term investment strategies to make sure that they can overcome the challenges they have today and in the future. Uh, CSOs, we've, we've released a, uh, a checklist on what is required under the permit uh, for asset management. Yeah. So um, really, CSOs and stormwater. Stormwater is another issue that requires asset management. Both of those uh, initiatives are well underway at the department. We released a, uh, a final draft, and now the permit's actually final as of last summer, uh, that requires um, New Jersey's uh, municipalities and MUAs that have combined sewer overflows to begin addressing the issue in earnest. And um, in addition, we've released a pre-draft of a, the statewide MS4 Tier A, Tier B permits. And the, the foundation of that is proper asset management through inventories and proper um, 
prioritization of improvements of stormwater assets. So really the baseline of a lot of the work, the, the baseline solution of so much of what we deal with in New Jersey, whether it be the water supply system, water quality system, um, flooding issues is proper asset management, not just having pipes in the ground, but knowing where those pipes are, um, knowing the age of those pipes, making sure we maintain those pipes, make sure we clean those pipes out. So it's not just about putting the pipes in the ground, it's about really understanding um, the system. Um, and making decisions based on a full awareness of the system. That's the, really the, the fundamental way we're going to avoid crisis in the future. Um, this next step, obviously, after that is to make sure that we have proper uh, opportunities for investment in this water infrastructure, because no one's going to say that um, there's not challenges that need to be overcome with investment. So we have our Environmental Infrastructure Trust Program. That's going to be a prime catalyst for that. Um, we do somewhere between 200 and $500 million of, of water infrastructure asset investment a year through uh, loans, low interest loans. Um, and uh, uh, we have great relationships with, with pretty much all the major water uh, utilities in the state. Um, and uh, on the water supply side, that includes uh, private uh, entities. Um, the strategy is very important as well. Um, so from that uh, known, we need to have strategies that include water supply planning, our, our, um, our CPP under the water quality side, our intended use plan um, that really lays out the framework for the environmental infrastructure trust investments, our integrated report and our 303D list that comes from our division of water monitoring standards, and a lot of the work we do through the DRBC um, uh, really gives us a regional context from a water supply perspective. So with good asset management, we can then get, have good strategy in place. Um, and I'll say it before uh, anyone else wants to bring it to the table. Yes, we do not have a draft of the water supply plan out on the street. Um, so yes, uh, so I'm going to take that question off of, off of, of Kevin's list. Um, but I will tell you that there's a lot of water supply planning going on in the uh, state of New Jersey, including safe yield assessments and some of the, your system operators understand all the work that we're going to reevaluate safe yields um, of all the, especially the Northeast major uh, systems, uh, engaging a lot of population and water demand survey, low flow margin analysis, ongoing water tracking, which is all available uh, through our New Jersey water tracking database. So you can basically track from source to use area to discharge point um, the water systems in the state. Um, drought work, we, we do a lot of work. We just inched our way out of um, a drought scenario um, in several of our major drought regions. We did that naturally. Usually we work our way out of drought with some sort of large um, uh, precipitation event like a tropical storm or a hurricane. This time we actually worked our way out through some gradual improvements over the late fall and winter and we're now out of um, any sort of drought concern at this point. But we are diligent. We have a staff working on that and that's certainly something we're working on. We're working in areas of the state like Cape May to make sure that um, uh, saltwater intrusion issues are being um, dealt with and our goal is to minimize current saltwater intrusion to locate new wells in areas to uh, make sure we offset that problem. Uh, from a geological mapping perspective, safe field guidance, aquifer testing, groundwater model maintenance, our division of water supply and geoscience staff is very, very active. And I can report to you that I've reported publicly in the past that all the data of the, da the draft water supply master plan is available online and um, is being used to uh, make permitting decisions um, on uh, projects and on safe field. So um, th that uh, all is not lost uh, because we don't have a draft plan. We're very active in the planning world um, with water supply, and uh, we're very proud of the work that our staff does, and um, it's very much supported uh, from the management level. Um, the, the two, three, and four of the, th the part of the recipe to avoid crisis. Second is investment in water infrastructure. I touched on that. Uh, the third is dealing with contaminants of emerging or re-emerging concern. Um, 
I would say the uh, contaminants of emerging concern include the suite of PFCs that um, the Drinking Water Quality Institute is working on that we do not yet have drinking water standards for, but there's work towards that end. And also some issues that um, are uh, emerging concern um, that uh, are uh, coming up from uh, from the ground, uh, you know, from the past, from the 60s and 70s. So uh, the lead issue we will get into, but that's not a new issue. And um, the first thing I'll say about lead is the source of lead in drinking water is very rarely from the source of the water. Um, so we really need to start to right size um, the public dialogue on the lead issue uh, in order to, for us to properly identify the solutions. The whole lead issue, lead issue and the ways in which elevated lev levels can be addressed is incredibly complex. Uh, we want to make sure that um, all of our water systems in the state that are regulated, um, schools on public water are not part of that group at this point, um, you know, to make sure that they're testing correctly, have the proper water quality parameters in place, um, and continue to report on our drinking water watch site that they do already. So um, DEP's regulatory role, if there's a question about that, I can help explain. Um, but the, the lead issue is certainly one that's very complex and is reemerging as a, as a really serious piece of interest. Um, and then the last part I'll say in our, on our kind of suite of opportunities and, and is, is partnerships. Uh, we know that there's no way for us to deal with this, uh, these issues on our own at the DEP or the water systems. That's why relationships with communities, with uh, the private sector, um, uh, with the water systems and um, groups like the Clean Water Council um, and uh, Jersey Water Works, which is a group that is just emerging that I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about today. Jersey Water Works is a group that um, is, is really working hard to get um, more public attention on these issues. We have a real opportunity to, to start talking in earnest about these issues right now uh, as public dialogue is really hot on water systems and water issues. Um, and we need to capitalize on that uh, renewed sense of urgency on water issues because clearly there's a need for good strategy uh, and good investment uh, uh, solutions to, to make sure that we, we don't go into an emergency and a crisis mode on water systems and the water systems that are having challenges can work their way out of them uh, with uh, as little, um, I guess I'd say as little investment as possible, meaning that we want to really be smart with the way we spend our money because the resources are very um, thin at this time. So we make sure every dollar we spend goes to um, a very targeted solution. Um, so thank you for uh, listening. I'm going to cede the rest of my time to my fellow panelists here and uh, um, take any questions you have on the details related to anything I've spoke of uh, moving forward um, in the questions section. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, it'll be enjoyable asking you questions later. And I uh, invite the audience to join in because he certainly raised a lot of questions in my mind. Our next speaker will be uh, Dennis Dahl. He is uh, chairman and uh, president of, uh, CEO of uh, the Middlesex Water Company, which I think even Dan and others would agree is one of the better managed water system, investor owned water systems in the state. And uh, Dennis, come on up, please. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces in the audience that I've come to know over the years, and I'm grateful that all of you continued to come out to talk about this important issue, and certainly for the roles that all of you play in tr trying to help us resolve many of these challenges that, that Dan described. Um, it's unfortunate that it takes a crisis on a national scale to get the kind of attention we've been getting lately uh, with respect to our tap water. 
Um, and I don't typically like to read my remarks at these types of events, but I do have a number of points here that I want to make sure I cover. So I apologize if I have to keep looking at my, my notes. Uh, but I've made a lot of observations from a national perspective in recent years from work that I've been doing with the National Association of Water Companies and the Water Research Foundation. And I want to be clear that my remarks today are my own. I'm not speaking on behalf of my peers in the state, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the water industry in general. So I'll start by saying we've all become quite familiar with the term aging infrastructure. Uh, they become buzzwords that leave a perception in people's minds that water systems in New Jersey are in desperate need of upgrade and replacement. And as Dan indicated, of course, we have a number of smaller troubled systems in the state, a number of very old systems, but there are also many older systems that are very well run and are absolutely adequately maintained. Um, and I look around the room, there are a number of you who represent uh, various utilities of various sizes. And I know you personally, I know the kind of work you do in maintaining those systems. So by no means should we be characterizing our state as being in a total state of crisis with respect to our, our infrastructure. But the Flint, Michigan issue has certainly put a major focus on water quality nationally, as well as in New Jersey, both at the state and at the local levels. And I think we all know there isn't a day that goes by lately where there aren't numerous media mentions around the country about water quality, about the condition of pipes in our water systems, about lead and plumbing fixtures in residences and schools. And sitting on top of all that, claims from virtually everywhere uh, that there isn't enough funding available to solve all of these problems. I've also seen a great deal of irresponsible reporting on these topics. And as is typical, the focus is drenched in emotion with little media focus on the true causes of the problems, the complexity of the chemistry and the operations related to water treatment and distribution. And in a number of reports I've seen, the water industry is being unfairly painted with a broad brush, with the implication being that most water systems are not replacing old or failing pipe on a timely basis, they're not performing proper maintenance, or they're delivering water that is putting the public health at risk and the public is not being made aware. All of this is creating anxiety in the minds of officials and the public who just want to know that their water is safe. Politics is also playing a major role in all this. I don't have to tell all of you that. Municipal officials and school districts are being faced with having to respond to challenges from parents and other constituents about what they're doing to protect them and their children. Local officials, frankly, from what I've seen, are in a panic. They're scrambling to take action of some kind, any kind, to address problems that they don't even know with certainty that they have, and to demonstrate to their constituents that they're doing everything they can to protect public health, and whatever the needs may be, they expect someone else to pay for all of it. As we all know, that someone else is ultimately the user of the utility service, or the taxpayer, or both. One positive thing I see coming from all of this is that people are waking up to the fact that there is plenty of good technical data about the quality of their water that is readily available in the consumer confidence reports. I'll be the first to admit that those reports are not fun or easy to read, uh, but the average consumer nonetheless does have access to that information if they choose to access it. Some officials, including some that we serve, are contacting their water providers asking for an ironclad guarantee that the water the utility is delivering is safe, that there is absolutely no lead anywhere in the system. In the press, I see that some believe the answer to all this is more legislation, 
more regulation, more direct taxes on the water service, and more taxpayer subsidized funding. All of these mechanisms are being debated currently. Then there, there, there are advocacy groups who are using all of these challenges as yet another opportunity to advance their misguided agenda, which is nothing more than to promote the notion that public ownership and operation of water systems is good and investor-owned ownership or operation is bad. Whether we're talking about the lead issue or the state of water and wastewater utility infrastructure, what frustrates me is that I don't believe we're having an honest enough conversation about the true nature and scope of the problems, about who should bear the responsibility for the fixes, and how all the operational and the financial needs can and should be addressed. So some additional observations that I have. Although there are certainly a number of water and wastewater systems in our state that need significant rehabilitation, it's unfair in my mind to characterize the water or wastewater infrastructure of the entire state as needing substantial rehabilitation. We need to be focusing on those systems that truly need significant improvement and not characterize our entire state's water or wastewater infrastructure as being in crisis. Unlike many states, you may be aware that in New Jersey we have a high concentration of investor-owned systems compared to many other states where there are largely municipal systems which are either departments of the municipal government or separate municipal authorities. Whether investor-owned or municipal, we're all subject to the same water and wastewater quality regulations promulgated by e US EPA and New Jersey DEP. The only structural difference is the rates and service quality of investor-owned systems are under the jurisdiction of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, and the municipal systems are under the jurisdiction of an elected or an appointed governing body with regards to rates and quality of service. I would argue that investor-owned utilities, like my company, are held to a very high, single, consistent set of standards by the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, which is a single body with overall responsibility for rates and service quality for all investor-owned water and wastewater utilities. Conversely, we have many municipal systems, each with its own governing body, establishing its own standards for rates and service. And in my mind, when you have so many different sets of standards of performance, logically some are going to be better than others. And when standards are not consistent, you can bet that the cost structures are also not consistent. I'm grateful that we have organizations like EPA and DEP, at least most of the time, uh, that have jurisdiction over a consistent set of standards for water quality and other critical service requirements that affect public health and safety, whether you're an investor-owned or a municipal system. I also believe we need to be honest about the fact that whether investor-owned or municipal, one model is not better or worse than the other. They're just different and there's a place for both. Each has its own benefits and each has its own costs. I also see that local politics play a much larger role in the management and rate setting in municipal systems based on my observations than investor-owned systems, which is why I see many extraordinarily capable, high-quality municipal operators frustrated by the lack of funds available in their budgets to make the investments and perform the maintenance that they know is needed. There are many very well-capitalized, well-maintained municipal systems that are absolutely doing the right thing. And I see some of you here in the audience today. There are some who struggle on an ongoing basis to meet permit requirements and provide adequate service. That's no secret. 
And that's often based, as we all know, on years of under-maintaining their systems and possibly not charging their customers the true cost of providing the service to avoid the negative political consequences of rate increases. So although not easy, quick, or cheap to implement, here's what I think we need to do. Number one, we need to remove the politics from the rate setting process and have full cost pricing for every water and wastewater system in the state. We need to know that every system is charging its customers the true full cost of providing the service. Investor-owned systems, by definition, all employ full cost pricing because if we're not charging the true cost of providing the service, we won't be able to attract the capital that's needed to run those systems. My view is that the true cost of providing the service should be reflected fully in the utility bill and not hidden as part of the property tax bill or another tax or other fee or assessment. We need at least, number two, we need at least some level of standardized asset management programs in all systems, and Dan referenced that need as well, both for investor-owned and municipal systems. Without greater standardization and greater accountability for adhering to consistent standards, it's impossible to have transparency and to do meaningful comparisons of quality across systems. Number three, we need to be confident that we have consistent enforcement of regulations at the federal, the state, and the local level for all systems. Number four, we need to establish a level playing field between investor-owned and municipal systems. There's a prevalent belief that because investor-owned systems earn a profit for their owners, that they should not be entitled to the same access to low-cost finance, financing, or government grants. What many don't understand is that a government grant provided to an investor-owned system does not line the pockets of the owners. It is all treated in the rate-making process by the Board of Public Utilities as contributed capital, and it all goes 100% to offset the rate base and therefore offset customers' rates. That's a huge misconception in my mind. My view is that equal access to taxpayer-subsidized funding should either be available to all systems or to no systems. Number five, I'm also not so naive to think that all these problems can be solved without at least some level of taxpayer subsidization, particularly for smaller troubled systems. In some places, the problems go so deep that the customers of those systems could never afford to pay for all the needed improvements. But at the same time, a taxpayer bailout can also be viewed as a reward for years of mismanagement and overall bad behavior. So those are my views. I'm not suggesting for a minute that my, again, my recommendations are necessarily easy, quick, or cheap. But I do strongly believe that unless and until we eliminate the unproductive background noise and focus on the true causes of these challenges and the truly realistic solutions, we will never make all the progress that we all know we need to make. So thank you for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, I, I guess our next speaker, Peggy Gallo, Executive Director of the Association of Environmental Authorities, is going to have a lot more to say about municipal systems and funding and what happens with them and their money. Uh, Peggy. Good morning, everybody. I'm very glad to be here with Dennis and Dan. And Dan, um, I appreciate everyone coming out today. Um, yeah, I, I am going to talk a little bit about authorities and municipal systems. Um, I have an awful lot 
um, to agree with uh, with a lot of what Dennis said and what Dan said, and uh, you may you may find that too. Um, I do also have mixed feelings about using the word crisis. Um, I think it, it's an alarming word, um, and uh, uh, on the other hand, as a former reporter, um, I always appreciate the ability of language to concentrate the mind on important issues. So, um, so as I say, I do have mixed feelings about that. I'll tell you a little bit about our association, the Association of Environmental Authorities. Um, we are uh, drinking water, wastewater, and solid waste agencies, as well as private sector businesses that support them. Um, we are uh, primarily composed of this special district form of government called authorities in New Jersey, sewage uh, authorities, county utilities authorities, municipal utilities authorities. AEA members serve most of the state's population and more than 5,000 men and women work in our member organizations. Most authorities were actually created several decades back to help New Jersey transform failing systems into modern delivery and treatment ones. The authority model works well, uh, and I agree with Dennis that there are uh, many paths up the mountain. Uh, it leaves management to the professionals. It puts the system and its funding somewhat at arm's length from the rest of the local government. At the same time, it enables the municipality or county that created the authority ultimately to keep a weather eye. Elected officials appoint the boards of authorities and are directly responsible for hiring the people who run the municipal systems. The quality of service and the review of the rate structure are ultimately their responsibilities. Each year, on the state level, the Department of Community Affairs reviews every authority and municipal budget, including the capital budgets. And of course, the NJDEP uh, addresses uh, funding and water quality matters. Together with our colleagues in the investor and utilities, the public water professionals in New Jersey are delivering water and treating water and by and large, by and large are fulfilling their obligations. Um, the situation is obviously not without challenges and I have a few suggestions, uh, as Dennis did, about um, areas that we can address. And uh, this kind of goes a little bit to what Dennis was saying about local officials being, being worried. And one of the solutions to, uh, to that type of uh, thing is educating decision makers. A while back, I read a news article where the town council member was uh, quoted as saying, everyone knows most sewer systems discharge to the ground. And of course, in fact, most of them don't discharge to the ground. For 45 years, AEA has offered continuing education to commissioners, mayors, any officials making decisions about water systems. However, such training is not required. Local officials often lack the most basic information to help them make informed decisions, whether that's approving a capital budget, reviewing an increase uh, of rates request, or considering selling a system. Planning board and board of education members by law receive orientation. We would support, AEA would support efforts to institute similar requirements. Within a year of their first term of office, those making decisions about our water could be required to attend orientation that helps them understand regulatory compliance, water quality, and water and wastewater operations and financing. Another matter to address, stop using public water and wastewater systems as piggy banks. 
About 10 years ago, the legislature passed a law that allows municipalities and counties to take a percentage of the funds from water and sewer utilities. The intention was to allow flexibility and cooperation between segments of local government. Fair enough. But we have seen cases where that transfer has become a regular revenue item in the municipal budget. If the water and sewer system is embedded in the municipal government, the transfers are even easier. There's a line called anticipated surplus from the utility that is, that is where you see these funds uh, transferred for other purposes. We actually think the DCA budget form language is misleading. It's called a surplus. Uh, it's actually just money that's not going to be spent in that current year. Um, the key to running a good water system, as uh, my two colleagues have said before me, is long-term planning. One measure that we did, AEA did, of about 66 municipalities and counties, um, we just added up how much <coughs> money was transferred over three years, uh, 2012 to 2014. Uh, $80 million over three years in just, in just uh, uh, less than 100 systems. Systems that could use the diverted money then put off upgrades. This is a significant factor in the underfunding of water and wastewater systems and aging infrastructure. Funds also disappear when an authority is dissolved. Authority undesignated fund balances can be used in emergencies and without the cost of borrowing. These balances serve the same function as a mortgage escrow, too. We have seen these fund balances disappear into the municipal budget once the authority is dissolved. Then we see that capital budgets don't get adequate, adequately funded and the quality of management goes down. We understand that there are hard choices to be made and great fiscal pressures, but water is life and decisions about the funds should be made with that in mind. Therefore, we would like to see limits on or more scrutiny about these transfers. We believe in places like Evesham, where they are currently considering dissolving the authority, the local finance board should require that any funds that are with the water and sewer system, even if the authority is dissolved, that those funds stay there. No, sh no shell games should be allowed. We also uh, uh, strongly believe that um, the uh, DEP and all relevant authorities should enforce existing requirements for asset management and continue to strengthen them. There's broad agreement that the best-run systems manage their assets and financing to maintain service quality, replace aging infrastructure, upgrade to better uh, technology. Timed and well done, and with the help of NJEIT funds, these projects can be done <coughs> with minimal rate shock. Here are some examples of what AEA members are doing uh, to address permit compliance, aging infrastructure, ensure adequate water supply, preserve water quality, and improve efficiency and resiliency. Lakewood Township MUA drilled a new active storage well, replaced an aging water tank, and replaced 6,500 meters with ones that can be read remotely. Jackson Township spent $30 million to make its system more efficient. Over the last five years, Ocean County Utilities Authority has averaged about $15 million per year in capital improvements. In 2016, it's got $26 million set aside. Atlantic County Utilities Authority invests about $5 million annually in capital improvements, approximately 17% of its, uh, its uh, $30 million wastewater budget. North Hudson Sewage Authority has a five-year capital plan of $76 million um, in, to address various uh, capital needs, including CSO-related projects. Passaic Valley Sewage Commission's resilience program includes $70 million, $75 million for a flood wall, $118 million for 
uh, standby power, 40 million for pumping stations, and 20 million for an on-site stormwater collection system. Um, I could go on. Um, uh, Cape May County has a 20-year, $214 million capital plan. Joint meeting of Essex and Union uh, puts aside about three or four million dollars a year. So um, there are many examples of this kind of improvement, um, capital improvement planning. We have participated in many discussions with the DEP about the importance of asset management, and we are glad to see that those borrowing funds from the NJEIT are required now to provide more information about their long-term planning. Many, probably most of that money that I just mentioned is, is coming through NJEIT. The type of support from the state uh, regarding asset management is really what gives the local officials the backing they need to go to their uh, their leaders and their ratepayers and request the kind of funding that they need. That, that backing is extremely important. Authorities know how to treat and remove pollution. Modern wastewater treatment has vastly improved our beaches and the further reduction of nutrients in the Passaic and Raritan rivers will greatly improve water quality there. So I want to point out that public water and wastewater agencies can be valuable partners in addressing water quality and infrastructure needs. One executive director told me the other day that he's partnered with his local school district to test drinking water in the schools. More of this interlocal work can help assure parents and give school officials the assistance that they need. Public agencies are already helping address stormwater. Bayonne MUA is working with its operator, United Water, the EPA, and the DEP to pilot an end-of-pipe treatment for stormwater. Uh, many agencies like Passaic Valley Sewage Commission and Brick Township MUA are actively promoting rain gardens and green infrastructure. This assistance becomes even more important as we begin to incorporate climate change adaptation into risk scenarios and community planning. Public systems can be partners to address lead in home plumbing. A combination grant loan program modeled on the clean energy uh, residential energy efficiency program and perhaps funded by a surcharge on bottled water or um, the um, deposit on plastic um, uh, plastic bottles that's uh, currently being uh, introduced in the uh, legislature. These can be uh, administered with the help of uh, public agencies as well. My last point is that we need to better educate the public, and uh, Dennis touched on that as well. Um, we can even um, uh, we can educate them about lead and and how their systems are run and that type of thing, and even seemingly unglamorous uh, issues such as not flushing so-called flushable wipes and uh, and not flushing pharmaceuticals. Um, as I said, all of the stakeholders, the decision makers, the professional professionals, and the users need to work together to mitigate whatever crises there are and to avoid new ones in the future. Thank you. What did you say about rain gardens? I'm sorry? I hear you said something about rain gardens. Uh, Brick MUA and Passaic Valley Sewage Commission are just two of the agencies that are working on uh, promoting rain gardens. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Peggy. So I guess I'll, uh, we'll hear you testifying in favor of the bottle deposit law on Monday. Uh, our, our final speaker in Baton Cleanup will be Dan Van Abs, and uh, he's well known to most people in this room. He also worked at 
DP, and now he's at Rutgers. And fortunately for us, he's an occasional columnist uh, and brings some much uh, needed expertise to the site. Uh, Dan? I think it's interesting that they set this up so you have a bookend of Dan's at this event. <laughs> we started that way and we're ending that way. Um, yeah, full, full disclosure, I spent a career with state government, with DEP, with the New Jersey Water Supply Authority, which is a state-owned water utility for bulk water supply, and with the New Jersey Highlands Council. And then um, uh, Rutgers picked up my option about three and a half years ago, and I've been having a lot of fun teaching since then. Um, and also writing. It's, it's a refreshing situation to be in a place where you can say what you feel, when you feel like it, to whomever you feel like, and I'll tell you when that you're in state government, that's not the case. <laughs> All right, so let me start out. We talk about how we need to improve the investments in our water utilities, water supply and wastewater, and stormwater. The stormwater is sort of the ignored utility, but it is a utility, in fact. We talk of long-term underinvestment and deferred maintenance. We talk of a looming cost in the billions of dollars for repairing, rehabilitating, and replacing literally thousands of miles of pipelines over the next 20 years. What we don't hear are specific numbers that represent a broad consensus on total costs. We have the US EPA need surveys for drinking water and wastewater including stormwater, but these are based on documented costs. And therefore, by their nature, they can't include what we don't know. And so all of those numbers are underestimates with regard to costs. I would suggest that if there is a crisis in water infrastructure, rather than a chronic problem that shows up as a series of local crises, like cars falling into holes and sewage going out into people's streets. The crisis is in our lack of knowledge. There's an old phrase that my parents taught to me when I was a kid, and I've always remembered it, is when in danger, fear or doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. <laughs> and you see a lot of that in this field. So, what to do about it. My background is in public administration of environmental programs. Um, a lot of people hear me talk and they say, well, he's a scientist. He's got a PhD. He must have a scientist, right? But I'm not. Um, my real background is in environmental public administration. And I was thinking about this topic in broad spectrum. I cannot name you a single environmental program anywhere that I have ever encountered that achieved success without a clear understanding of objectives. What is it that we want? Standards are the backbone of every system of governance, whether it's regulatory governance or peer support governance or you name it. Um, and I'm not saying just government, I'm saying governance, the broader term. Standards are the backbone of these programs. And Everything else is how you get there. So what are the standards? The standards for infrastructure, we focus generally on the results of our treatment plants. 
Drinking water quality standards are clear. How we measure them, not always so clear, but generally they're clear. By the way, I never use the term safe with regard to drinking water because there are always risks, there are always trade-offs, there are always possibilities for some level of health issue. I think the federal government and the state government should have called it the Safer Drinking Water Act. But, um, of course, they went with the term safe. But I don't use safe because safe is a perception issue. Safe is a matter of what you consider adequate. And so what we're really doing as a society is setting standards that are based on the question of how good is good enough, not how good is perfect, all right? So drinking water standards. Wastewater effluent standards are also quite clear. When you discharge, you must meet this effluent quality, period. And if you don't, there are enforcement penalties and so on. We have a few infrastructure standards that focus on operating conditions. For instance, sanitary sewer overflows are illegal. That's pretty clear. The notion that you, with the water supply line, you must maintain a certain pressure within the line to ensure that you have the safe um, operation of that system. But for the most part, the integrity of water infrastructure has been assumed based on meeting the standards that we have with regard to drinking water quality and wastewater effluent quality. We now know that really isn't sufficient. And prior speakers have picked up on this issue. How do we know how good is good enough if we don't know where we are? If we have not actually assessed our systems, if those assessments have not been gathered up. There are many utilities out there who actually have done very good assessments. Where is that information? It's at the utilities. But a statewide compilation of that information does not exist. We don't know. And so part of our problem is that we lack consensus standards on how to measure how good or bad our systems are. And lacking those standards, we are floundering. Because we can't point to one utility and say, we know they're good because. We can say, we know they're good because we trust that they're really high quality professionals, because we see them investing in things and so on. But in terms of having a metric that says, okay, they have met this metric, for the most part, we lack that. Utilities respond to a number of signals. They respond to regulatory signals. Do this. Don't do that. They respond to pricing signals. If you do this, you lose money. If you do that, you gain resources. And they, res they respond to signals from the public. What does the public desire? Well, again, the standards are critical because the public desires, for instance, drinking water that meets drinking water quality standards. If you ask the public whether that's what they want, almost 100% of them will say, yes, that's what we want. Well, that's pretty basic. How do they send their signals with regard to utilities? 
we don't want cars to fall through sinkholes in the street that were opened up by a leaking power, uh, water line. Okay, they, can, they might be able to say that. But what are the standards? So, fortunately, I don't come here as an academic just stating problems. Because I'm on the steering committee of Jersey Waterworks, which was mentioned before. That Jersey Waterworks is a cooperative program. It's not even an organization. It's not a 501c3, you know, established organization. It's a, it's a collaborative of nonprofit, community environmental organizations, government agencies from local up to federal, water utilities, consultants, a whole variety of other people. And the focus, as was mentioned, is on improving New Jersey's water infrastructure through collaborative efforts. Jersey Waterworks last year established some broad goals for water supply, wastewater, and stormwater infrastructure. And it's now starting work, just starting work, this month on a critical next step, which is to identify appropriate indicators, metrics, measurement systems, and targets for the year 2020. It's our hope that this work, and especially the development of consensus around these indicators, metrics, and, and targets, will help establish a system of governance to move New Jersey forward. And it's further the hope that some of these will wind up useful in a regulatory process so that they can be brought into the agencies and used by them as the basis for standard setting. It's interesting to me to note that New Jersey knows how many bridges it has and the current status of those bridges and a pretty good estimate as to what it would cost to fix those bridges. Not that we actually spend that money, but we know what we're supposed to spend, all right? We don't even know, from statewide perspective, we do not even know how many miles of pipelines we have in New Jersey. That figure has never been compiled, much less statewide statistics regarding their status. Until we know where we are, we were really quite hampered in terms of how we move forward. So as someone who has been a regulator before, who has studied this stuff, I would state very strongly that we need to know what we want before we tell people to go get it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dan. Um, and I'm looking at the time, and we only have an hour, and there's been so many good issues raised by the speakers and the panelists. Um, and I'll leave off with what uh, Dan put out there, um, because I think it's pretty uh, on the mark. Uh, I'd ask the other panelists to address do we know really the state of uh, the water system? I, I, I mean, I believe uh, water, the drinking water is in pretty good shape in New Jersey, but there's some studies that say that uh, we lose 20% uh, of the water from being treated to the delivery to the home and the business. Um, Dan says we don't even know many, how many pipes 
uh, miles of pipeline we have. Uh, is that a priority that ought to be emphasized, uh, getting to know where we are? Dan Kennedy, I'll start off with you because you're the big concho here in terms of right. state policy. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. Um, I think if, if bridges were underground, we probably wouldn't know how many bridges we had in the state. Um, it's, you know, calls the unique challenge of our water infrastructure. And uh, um, the reason, one of the things we've done recently, because, uh, you know, there's a, uh, I, there's a level of agreement I have with, uh, with what Dan said, uh, Dan Van Ab said uh, about, I can not agree with myself right now, um, is that uh, we do need a better awareness of uh, uh, statewide awareness of where our systems are at. Um, no one's fooling themselves to think that the state of New Jersey has the um, professional resources or knowledge of these systems to do this assessment itself. I don't even think Dan would argue that. Um, that, I, that the staff of the Depart Division of Water Supply and Geoscience would, would know enough about um, these systems, these you know, hundreds and thousands of, 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 uh, of, of widgets in the ground to actually do that appropriately. So our best bet is to work with the water systems. Um, we recently did a survey um, uh, of these systems um, and uh, we will be publishing the results of that survey to, to get a better understanding of the status of asset management um, uh, throughout the state. Um, so the questions we first question we asked is, have you done a, an inventory of your assets, not just your, your and this is just in the water um, uh, supply and water quality. It doesn't deal with stormwater. Uh, our recent stormwater uh, permit, pre-draft of the permit, would require a proper inventory of uh, stormwater assets um, in the next, uh, in the terms of that permit, which would be within uh, four or five years from roughly now. So yes, on the stormwater side, we've issued a pre-draft of a permit that would get us to an inventory of stormwater assets in place, coupled with our CSO permit. We think that would deal with the storm, the stormwater universe. Water supply, water quality. Um, we think of over half of the, the medium large systems in the state have done a proper inventory. Uh, we do not at this point have a centralized uh, repository for that information. Um, but it's encouraging to know that, um, that these large scale systems are uh, ahead of where they, uh, ahead of where we assume they were at, which we assume that um, we were really uh, kind of in the hole with asset management. What we learned as a result of the survey is that these systems are doing a uh, fairly good job at asset management at the early stages, the inventory part. Um, where it starts to fall off a bit based on the results of our survey is the um, prioritization of uh, key assets based on um, criticality, what that criticality means, the critical component of the widget, or criticality based on the risk the, that widget has um, in the scope of some sort of natural uh, issue, which is you know sea level rise or um, uh, some, something resulting in um, the uh, frequ increased frequency of storms that put that asset at risk. Uh, and then it falls off even further when you connect it to a long-term uh, capital uh, plan to overcome and replace and uh, modernize and maintain those assets. So you could see a drop off, but you see it in the early stages that what Dan's talking about is the inventory. I think if we do over the next couple of years, I think we'll be in a good place um, as we get the rest of the systems to come in under asset management to do their inventories. And then the state will be in a position to pull that information together to get us a better assessment of, uh, of, of that inventory in the state and the status of that inventory. I think we're not far off from being able to do that. But as we sit right now, Dan is right. We are not capable of doing that. Um, comprehensively at the state, um, but I, I think we, we are positioning ourselves through our permitting programs to be able to do that probably in the next generation of management at DEP, but we're really setting the stage for that to happen. Can I ask, when you say asset, stormwater asset, is that um, also green infrastructure? 
Yes, the, the pre-draft of the permit we released would require um, uh, inventorying of green infrastructure assets moving forward. Very, uh, the, it's within the range of possibilities that we could require um, green infrastructure all the way back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But um, and on the hard infrastructure assets, we're asking for a complete inventory. But on green infrastructure, um, the pre-draft of the permit, which is available for public comment on our website, and we're doing uh, statewide um, communication and outreach on this pre-draft of the permit right now, what's proposed is uh, kind of green infrastructure moving forward under the terms of the new permit. Correct. MS4, Tier A, and Tier B. Dennis, once you uh, address that question, and as you do, would you, um, Dan Kennedy mentioned that the medium to large systems are doing a pretty good job and have somewhat of an inventory of their assets. But <clears throat> there's many smaller systems in the state, and... Uh, what was left unsaid is the implication they're not doing such a good job. And for the audience, could you explain what kind of percentage of the water they provide to the residents of New Jersey? Well, I, th I think you heard a consistent theme across all four of us, which is the need for some standardization uh, with respect to asset management. Um, and and I, I, I agree with Dan. I think it's largely a resource issue. Everybody knows what we need to do. It's just a matter of do we have the resources to get it done. Um, and I, I keep, I'll go back to the investor-owned utilities. We are required on an annual basis to report to the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities in our annual report, which is public information available to anyone who wants it, the number of miles of main that we have, what communities those mains are in, the size of the pipe, the composition of the pipe, the age of the pipe, all of that information is completely documented and available. I think that's where we need to get for every system in the, in the state, whether it's water, wastewater, stormwater. But until we have the consistent standards, I don't know that we will make meaningful progress. And I'm certainly not in a position to know, as none of us are, um, what systems are not adequately inventorying uh, their assets. But I know from our company's perspective and any other investor-owned water utilities, wastewater utilities in the room, we're all required to be held to the same uh, reporting requirements to the New Jersey Port of Public Utilities. Peggy, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I'd just like to point out, um, I, I think that the survey was a really helpful thing and we were involved in developing that. Um, that's a, a, a self-selecting sample, right? That's the only... <laughs> So the, what it still doesn't tell us, and is, it's what, what Dennis was just talking about, is the people who didn't answer us, answer it didn't. Um, uh, that's, that's the big mystery. Um, but um, one thing that could be helpful is that the Department of Community Affairs, as I mentioned, uh, reviews budgets, and that includes capital budgets. And if we could um, bring the DCA in um, to, um, through that review process, and, and there may be some information that could be captured that way, um, that uh, that would come through that that review process, and that also might provide information. Um, and I think that um, the other aspect of this, um, and this is not a reason not to do these kinds of inventories, of course, but um, the other thing that we have to counter is, um, uh, I, and I know this comes up through some of the. Um, 
uh, Office of Homeland Security groups that I'm involved with that there also becomes a security issue of what level of information needs to be um, kept um, a little bit more difficult to get. Uh, we just had a, a news about a water system that, that was um, hacked, um, a dam. And, um, you know, so that kind of thing does become an issue too. Um, and so finding that balance is really important. Just, Tom, two quick notes. Um, shameless plug, but it's for a public entity. The New Jersey Clean Water Council on April 12th in, uh, at 1 o'clock is going to actually be hearing a, uh, holding a public hearing that is focused on the new draft um, MS4 permits, the stormwater permits. And so anybody who is interested in coming and being part of that, um, certainly welcome to do that. I'll, I'll say that as a member of the Clean Water Council. There's another member of the Clean Water Council right back there, uh, Lou Neely. And the other point that I would make is that um, the, the question was raised about, uh, about the utilities. And the vast majority of individual water supply utilities in the state provide a very minimal amount of the total supply. And so we have a small number of very large systems, and then we have a very large number of very small systems. I was able to, um, I can provide somewhere along the line, maybe I'll throw it into an article for New Jersey Spotlight. Um, I can provide the results of the analysis I was able to do from the DEP's information on that. Can you give a range though? I mean, a rough guesstimate? About 50 systems or 85%, something like that. I don't recall in detail, but it's, it's a really a quite small number of utilities provide the vast majority of the water. That sort of begs the question, are we setting the right priorities and shouldn't we? I mean, there was a law passed uh, back during the big drought, I think in the early 80s, that proposed to lead to con uh, consolidation and uh, takeover of many of these so smaller systems. And I guess that hasn't happened as much as the state would have liked it. And what, are we setting the right priorities? Well, and let's face it. Do we need to be more aggressive in taking over these small systems? Many of these small systems are groundwater supplied systems. They don't generally require a lot of treatment. And so the question really is maintenance of the, the distribution system. And, and some of these are trailer home parks. Some of these are, um, you know, individual small subdivision developments. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so the management might be consolidated, but they're never going to really be connected to any other system. Um, and so the question is, how do you find the ones that are having the problem? And that's where the issue of standards and information comes up. Uh, Dan Kennedy, you want to weigh in on that, please? I think the decision of uh, privatizing or consolidation is one that I wouldn't offer a general response to. I think it's very much a uh, system-by-system approach. Um, and, uh, you know, New Jersey's position is, is not to take preference over uh, big or small or uh, public or private, but to ensure that, you know, as, as Dan said, you know, meet the general background standards, um, but also, um, you know, are uh, you know, trying to set themselves up. And we, we do know there's a lot of conversation um, in, with systems around the state. Um, there have been... Um, smaller systems uh, uh, privatized uh, at their own free will and accord of the local government. Um, and uh, it always happens that way. So 
Uh, although the legislature at one point, uh, at certain points, may create opportunities for consolidation or privatization, it's really a self-initiated process and a partnership between the, the local the locals in charge of the system at the time and the, uh, um, the, the private company who may wish to take over either long-term maintenance and operations or take over ownership of the system. And the state of New Jersey um, isn't, you know, I guess, taking a side in that fight. It's very much a self-initiated issue at the local level, and um, we will support um, the, the buyer and the seller in that scenario to ensure that it goes through the process efficiently and fairly. That's our position. Okay, Dan Kennedy, I'm sorry to be picking on you, and I appreciate you taking the time to appear here, but uh, you did mention about the water supply master plan, and it's a very important issue for many people, especially here in this room. And you said uh, the data is online and it's being used to make permitting decisions. Shouldn't there be some sort of consent, a uh, concise summary of where New Jersey is at and what that data says and where the deficits are occurring. Somebody mentioned saltwater intrusion in Cape May. The, pair, the old plan talked about deficits in North uh, Jersey, Northwest Jersey, I believe it was. Um, shouldn't uh, the department make some of that information public so uh, the public can recognize where the state is heading in terms of water supply needs and problems. Uh, they, they, I've never said that the, the this water supply plan statewide is never going to be adopted. I just reported that the draft is not available at this time for public consumption. Um, and uh, uh, decisions on the release schedule are clearly not mine to make. Um, and uh, information about the, the nuances that you referenced are currently public right now, and conversations are ongoing with the water systems that have challenges with safe yield, and those, uh, there's public conversations going around. So I'm not disagreeing that, uh, um, uh, that there, there in the future should be some sort of uh, um, consolidated strategy there, and I think there will be at one point, but uh, at this point, uh, all, I'm, all I can report is that the draft is not out there and that we are responsibly regulating based on contemporary information. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, I'm getting a bunch of questions, uh, so I guess I should ask some. Uh, a panelist perspective on what's going on in Newark Public Schools. Uh, I guess that's on the lead issue. And again, Dan Kennedy, uh, as for Dan, any updates from DEP? I, and I know that... Uh, Newark is sort of uh, releasing the information, so. Sure. Um, briefly, uh, you know, from the 90s, uh, EPA has had regulations on the lead and copper rule. Uh, New Jersey uh, embraces those regulations, kind of copy and paste in the, in the context of all, the way we regulate systems. In that scenario, um, we basically have two groups uh, that fall under the regulatory umbrella of New Jersey. The first group is a public water system known as community water systems, or some would call, you know, city water. Um, that centralized water. And the second group is non-transient, non-community systems. And generally, this is a smaller group. And these are, um, if you were to look at it um, kind of simply, it's uh, mostly of those systems are on wells. Um, schools uh, are regulated uh, under as a permit for the state of New Jersey under the EPA rules and the state rules 
if and only if they fall into the second group, um, as uh, there's about 250 schools in the state that are actually on their own wells and have their own permit and have a compliance schedule of, and, you know, sampling and monitoring and compliance schedule if something's wrong. Uh, New York Public Schools falls into the first category and is not regulated on, in, in any, uh, in, in, it wouldn't be regulated in any state in the country. Um, it is a part of Newark Public's uh, water system. Newark's, the source of Newark's, Newark's water is not in, in question from a lead perspective. And we do know scientifically that um, lead in water is not the, the leading cause of lead issues with uh, sensitive populations. Um, there's other exposures to lead, so it's really confusing when you start to talk about um, uh, the, the conclusions about uh, lead sampling in the blood of, um, of certain populations, and then you start to draw a, a direct line to water issues, I think that's dangerous and, and perhaps inappropriate. Um, you have to understand the com comprehensive issues that, that result in lead exposure, um, and water is a small part of that uh, conversation. Um, so in the, in, the, in the real way, newer school districts are in charge of this issue. Um, they are now testing every tap, uh, in every school, uh, every opportunity for exposure in these schools, including food, food services, comprehensively under a new sampling plan. Um, there are over 60 school facilities in, in New York, which is kind of daunting uh, for the district. Um, they uh, went through the first round of, uh, they sh after receiving results from 30 or so schools that were exceeded the EPA action level, uh, we made a quick decision with them and recommended that uh, those schools that are of immediate concern be put on um, alternate sources of water, which happened pretty, pretty much uh, from our perspective overnight and very swiftly. Um, and we set up a sampling paradigm that would uh, first test in the priority one uh, schools that were um, not tested in the last round of testing. Uh, results were just reported yesterday, and if you read the papers this morning, you'll see those results. There were some additional facilities that um, uh, had lead exceedances, but the, I guess the, the good news of it is, is most of those exceedances were not at, at the drinking water outlets, uh, and, and all those schools and facilities were already on alternative sources of water, so um, I guess that's the good news of it. Um, the, the next round of sampling were, uh, uh, took place already um, for the 30 schools that were already tested to do a comprehensive test of those schools, every tap. Uh, every outlet, um, and the reports will be published by uh, Newark Public School District on a rolling basis as those results are available. Uh, those are retesting of schools that are already on alternate sources of water, so again, the time we're spending is well spent because the risk has been eliminated. Um, and then the remaining of the schools um, there will be tested on a schedule uh, based on priorities set by the Newark Public School District. So um, it's something that uh, will be ongoing for uh, weeks and months. It's not going to go away overnight. Um, and uh, frankly, the Newark Public School District is, is the lead on it. We are providing a very uh, close and supportive role from a sampling perspective. We've got staff helping them out, uh, you know, day to day, hour by hour, uh, spending a lot of time with the district to make sure they get it done right. Um, but uh, there's, uh, there's also other schools around the state that are going to be testing and sampling. They've reached out to us for advice uh, on how to approach the, the voluntary uh, sampling that they can take under the EPA's three T's program. So um, more to come on other school districts. I don't personally think that this breaks a, with an urban-suburban divide or a rural divide. I think there's old buildings throughout the state, um, and schools are not the only old buildings in our state. So I think that uh, this issue is not in the um, uh, result. It's a, it's, a, it's a niche issue in this state because it doesn't follow the same trends of uh, issues with the public water supply. It really has more to do between the uh, 
um, the lead service line and the, and the faucet in these old buildings in our community. And it's New Jersey, as you all know, is a, an older state. We've got older buildings, um, and uh, we've got older cities and, and older communities all throughout the state uh, that are not classified as cities. So um, more to come on it, uh, but uh, we are uh, Commissioner Martin and the entire management staff at the department is really doing our best to assist Newark School District get through this um, this issue and uh, responsibly uh, remediate uh, the uh, issues that they face so that the schools have, uh, you know, uh, drinking water, uh, whether it's through the uh, fountains or through alternative uh, options that uh, is, uh, is they feel is safe or safer, depending on if you like the word safe or not. I know Dan doesn't like the word safe, but um, appropriate. So. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want this uh, form to... <coughs> Uh, belabor the lead issue, but I've gotten a lot of questions about the lead uh, issue. Uh, and Peggy brought up the so-called bottle bill that would provide some money to test um, all schools and hopefully provide a source of money uh, to fix uh, those service lines and fixtures where uh, problems are de detected and one of the questions is is that a good idea or should they take the money from the clean energy fund as it has also been suggested and how uh, one of the questions from the audience is uh, how expensive is it going to be we have uh, billions of dollars in other priorities what what is the lead problem going to cost I just I just want to make a point about the clean energy program, and um, we definitely think that there uh, needs to be a source of funding identified, um, and um, uh, we recognize that there aren't that many choices. But our concern about the clean energy program money is that uh, you have many water and wastewater utilities that have uh, been able to realize really measurable. Uh, benefits and improvements to their system through clean energy program money, energy efficiency, and renewable energy money. And our concern about shifting money is is that 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 benefit then gets lost. Uh, so you know we do have that concern. Anybody, Dan Van Abs, you want to take a stab at what's going to cost uh, to. Uh test and remediate uh, the systems in the state that where lead problems are found in the water? As was said in times of your deponent, knoweth not. Um, no, I have, I have no clue uh, as to that because for one thing, we do have a whole bunch of new school buildings. One would expect them to not have this issue. We have a lot of old school buildings. One would expect that they might well have this issue. Um, and the, the notion of tearing a building apart to replace lead lines, um, you're talking about enormous expenses to do that, but how much that will be, I don't know. I do know that um, this state has a tendency to rob from Peter to pay Paul, um, and that was raised by Peggy with regard to money coming from the authorities to go over to municipal purposes instead of being used by the authorities for the maintenance of their systems. We are seeing the same thing with regard to um, money within the DEP 
um, the whole debate right now on the open space fund and where that money goes. Um, this is one situation where I guess I'm fortunate to be at Rutgers where it's very clear um, that I cannot lobby and therefore I will not uh, with regard to what the appropriate answer is here. But um, we, we must recognize, and this raise, has been raised over and over again, we are a, an old state. We're one of the original 13 colonies, folks. We were the initial industrialized state of the nation. We are where it started in Patterson. And there are a lot of old issues that are coming back at us, and they will cost money regardless of whether we want to pay for them. And the question then is, well, are we going to pay for them? And the answer is yes, we are going to pay for them. The question is whether we're going to pay for them in an efficient fashion or in an inefficient fashion. Are we going to pay for them now or are we going to let the problem fester for a long time? But we're going to pay for them because we have no choice. Thank you. And I appreciate, appreciate your very artful dodge on that, Dan. Uh, okay, uh, let me go back to that. Uh, I keep getting questions. Uh, uh, here's one from the audience on stormwater, which we haven't uh, talked about. And I meant to ask <laughs> Dan Kennedy again, as long as I've mentioned stormwater, about CSLs, if you'd just give us an update at some point on uh, the, not right now if you don't want to, give you a last uh, on the CSO permit process, you briefly mentioned it in your uh, initial presentation. Find it. Might as well get it out of the way. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, last summer, uh, New Jersey became the first uh, state in the country to issue uh, individual uh, permits for CSOs. Um, and the, uh, the goal there was to um, uh, avoid uh, the judiciary system setting the terms of these plans. Um, and uh, we had the full backing of EPA on this approach. Uh, in this scenario, we have communities and MUAs receiving basically the same permit. Um, we provided incentives to have uh, hydraulically connected communities working together. Um, so instead of having 25 or so separate long-term control plans, we're gonna have about nine that uh, actually integrate um, the uh, hydraulically connected communities and have them work together, the, the communities and the MUA, which provides the treatment at the end of, uh, 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 and uh, that's actually a huge accomplishment from an efficiency standpoint. Um, and from a regional uh, planning perspective, that's a huge accomplishment. Um, the, uh, the work is underway for system characterization, set up for modeling uh, of the system. So the first step in the long-term control plan is I guess the first step is education and, and dealing with some of the legal wranglings around uh, the final permit. Um, but uh, there's real work underway now taking place on system characterization and modeling will be the next step. Um, and over the next three to four years, we're going to be trying to come up with uh, long-term control plan. Well, we will be coming up with long-term control plans that um, bring in the principles of asset management, identify uh, a long-term investment strategy to eliminate uh, and greatly reduce uh, CSO outfalls and volume in these communities. Um, this is very important because from a market perspective, uh, uh, the development community is responding to the demographic interest of having uh, homes and businesses located in our urban centers. Uh, CSOs are typically in our urban centers. 
uh, throughout the state. And so it's not just an environmental issue or a community development issue. It's, a, in my view, kind of economic competitiveness issue because it's really hard to sell places as places that are going to be magnets for investment when you also have uh, CSO issues uh, in the streets, not just uh, with intense events, but in some uh, of our communities once or twice a month when it rains a quarter inch or more. So it's a, it's, it's a classic sustainability issue where you've got environmental, community, and economic interests all together in one, forcing us to come up with uh, some solutions. Uh, how we pay for that, um, the strategy around that is a later phase of the long-term control plan, but the deliverable is to have a long-term control plan approved by the state and the EPA um, in the next uh, four and a half years at this point. Um, which is a substantial move forward statewide uh, from the situation we found ourselves in on the past uh, several generations of this issue, which we've been trying to deal with this issue uh, through um, general permits, through uh, the judici judiciary system with the Department of Justice coming after specific towns. This is a much more orderly, organized uh, system that will be initiated in the goals to have the issue addressed over a period of you know 20 or 30 years this is the view we have to take on this is not going to happen uh overnight but with a good strategy up place in place where we can embrace it and work together um and capitalize on the environmental infrastructure trust benefits uh, we're going to be in a much better position as a result of this long-term control plan process okay uh as long as we're talking about runoff uh here's a question from the audience um should we have stormwater authorities in New Jersey to maintain and improve stormwater management? That's been a recurring issue. There was a bill passed by the legislature to um, propose that. It got vetoed by the governor. Um, anybody have any thoughts? Is that the way to go? Peggy? So uh, kind of like the word crisis, I have mixed feelings about that because um, I think that um, the value of having a, another special district, essentially, is some of what I discussed earlier about having uh, a, a designate, desi designated focus of, of the agency. Um, on the other hand, um, from my point of view, I say, well, we already have um, a, a, a number of agencies, um, and they're called authorities that can perhaps provide assistance on this. Uh, there may have to be statutory uh, ch changes to give them the, um, the uh, uh, revenue creating power to, to do this. But uh, so, what, so we, we, we kind of had a nuanced position on that bill, which was that we, we support the idea because we think that stormwater needs uh, addressing, obviously. Uh, but we also think that uh, it should be permissive that um, the local governments that want to uh, address these issues through their uh, existing utilities authorities and sewage authorities uh, should be able to do that, um, provided the me mechanism is also there for, for funding it so that they're not being asked to um, do even more with, uh, with the funds that they're collecting. So we think that um, the public agencies can be part of that solution, the existing ones. Uh, Dan, Van Apps? There are approximately 1,500 stormwater utilities in the nation um, in a wide variety of states. Um, Western Kentucky University is, keeps track of these and does a great study every year. The point is that what makes a stormwater utility is the fee structure. 
but it can be a fee structure that feeds into a Department of Public Works in a municipality. It can be a fee structure that works into an existing utility authority. It is a fee structure that can feed into a purpose-built stormwater utility authority. So the key is to develop funds to manage stormwater based on the land uses so that those who contribute more runoff to the stormwater system pay more in the way of a fee. And so the idea is to increase the equity. The problem that we have is, is that when you have, for instance, sewage entities, as an example in the combined sewer overflow communities, when the sewer ratepayers are paying for the full cost of doing CSO controls, then there are a whole bunch of people who are providing water into that sewage system from parking lots and so on that are not providing equitable um, rate contributions to that. And so what people have found across the nation is that the, the implementation of a stormwater utility fee structure is an actually a more equitable way of making sure that you deal with both the water of the stormwater and the wastewater issues of a community. I so, think many people here would agree with that, but uh, getting such a mechanism through the legislature is a much bigger hurdle given that uh, this powerful uh, lobbying interests that would oppose it, any it is. such proposal. And there's, there's certainly, a, you know, every time something like this comes up, it's just another tax. But part of the issue is how do you, how do you constrain this so that it, the, the money is developed fairly, used properly, tied to a capital budget, and so on. And the other part of it is that um, people are only focused on the stormwater fee portion of it, and they're not paying any attention to the effect on the other rate they pay. Because what happens is that a portion in municipalities around the country, a portion of the sewer rate actually is then, um, is actually reduced. And residents, by the way, in urban areas tend to pay, tend to pay less, tend to pay less. So the, the current situations that we have tend to be inequitable to residences. Um, Tom, just I should add, there's an uh, interesting court case in Ohio where the uh, authority, Cleveland Authority, was actually um, taken to court. They had added what was essentially a stormwater fee um, uh, to their rate structure. And um, it was challenged and it was upheld. And we were very interested in that, uh, in that court case and to see if, I don't know if that's been tested in New Jersey, but it's an interesting um, case to look at. Okay, Dennis, uh, you've been uh, strangely quiet, and uh, we're going to bring you back into the discussion <laughs> with a lead question of all sorts from the audience. And I don't, I've, I haven't heard this number, but I believe it says it's been estimated that 80% of Newark residential service lines have some lead. How should we test those lines, and should be there an inventory of those lines, and should we replace them? Well, all I can say is step one is knowing what you have. Um, and as anybody in the room who operates the system knows, when this lead issue emerged, everyone was taking a closer look at what they have to understand whether or not they even had the problem. 
Uh, Rick Rizzoldi, our chief operating officer who was here in the room, reminded me that our company replaced all of its lead service lines that the company owns more than 25 years ago as the lead and copper rule was coming out. So from the company's side, we believe we're in full compliance with the lead and copper rule and don't have any significant issues. What, we're be what we've been talking about, whether it's Newark or anyone else, it's the lead potentially that could be in a portion of the line that is owned by that entity, whether it's a, a government building or a school or, or even a private residence. So knowing what you have and knowing the extent to which you have a problem, to me is step one before you can even determine what you need to do. There's an assumption by many that any lead fixture or any lead that leaches into the drinking water is caused by the utility, whether they be municipal or investor-owned. And it was shared earlier that they're generally, the, the lead is not an issue generally in the source water. It's in the fixtures, it's in any lead, lead service lines. So I'm not in a position to conclude what the cost would be, uh, but I do believe step one is, is taking responsibility for the portion of the facility that you own and then not necessarily assuming that that problem needs to be solved by someone else. There may be some school districts who are quite capable of doing the testing and doing the remediation based upon their own financial profile and uh, the age of their, their facilities and so forth. There are others like the city of Newark, very old, more than likely a lot of lead and their challenges much larger. So there's no easy answer to that question. But I'm grateful to be able to say with confidence that our company, which is our responsibility, Dan has responsibility for all of it throughout the state, but in the little piece of the, the world that we manage, we're fairly confident that we're in good shape. Um, some people say that the big problem with lead, and I, I agree with you about the source of the uh, supply is generally good, but the source, if lead is found in the system, it generally occurs from uh, the street, uh, from the curb to the home or the business or school. Uh, did you replace those lines? We replaced, there's, there's two pieces to the service line. One is the line from the main to the curb, and the other piece is from the curb to the home. The piece from the curb to the home is owned by the homeowner or the business or the school. The piece between the main and the curb is owned by the utility. We replaced all of the lead service lines that we own between the main and the curb. Everything else, there's certainly customers of ours who have lead service lines, and if they ever leak or need to be repaired, we recommend they replace them with, with copper, something other than lead. Um, but we can't take responsibility for the facilities that we don't own, at least not under current legislation and regulation. That creates a potential a dilemma because ma uh, many of these uh, lines are in urban areas with uh, lower income residents who might not have the money to replace the line from the curb to the home. And the question is, who's going to step in and provide that money? And you would think maybe, okay, how about the Environmental Infrastructure Trust? But that's a loan program, and would that work well to address this problem? What do you think, Dan? Well, we, we are um, looking at options at the Environmental Infrastructure Trust. Uh, there are major water uh, companies in the state that do offer uh, complete replacement of, um, 
uh, lead lines, uh, service lines from the, 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 the trunk line to the, to the home. Uh, and uh, it's surprising to hear from those that are offering that, that uh, it's been offered for many, many years and residents had not participated because of, uh, I, I can't testify to this directly because it's not my program, but the, um, the word from the folks that run the program is that residents were reluctant because they didn't want their yards ripped up. And uh, so it's, uh, you know, we would hope that with more education that those residents would make different decisions moving forward. Um, so it's not that um, there aren't, there were the reason why that community, I'll, I'll name them, that, that system is PVWC. The reason why they have uh, that aggressive program is because they have um, uncovered finished water reservoirs and they are unable to uh, provide the corrosion control treatment like other systems like Newark does um, because they've got open air finished water uh, reservoirs um, that have been in the paper as well um, and they're under federal and state uh, consent order to um, resolve that in the short term. But because um, those communities are, are not um, benefiting from the corrosion control, I mean, let's be very clear. The only reason why lead service lines are an issue is when the lead in the, from the pipe becomes mobilized in the water. With the right chem water chemistry, um, which can be controlled, uh, centralized with the water treatment, um, is that uh, you have the right water chemistry and that lead doesn't become mobilized and doesn't get into the water, which is why you, don't ha you may have wa uh, service lines. You do have service lines in a community like Newark, but when you have the, um, the, the testing that takes place at the tap uh, in those communities, you don't see uh, issues like you see in the schools. So that's the, the major driver is because you, Newark does have corrosion control on its system. So in PVWC, where they're unable to have appropriate corrosion control because of their open air reservoirs, which has lots of different folks have commented on that, um, it becomes challenging for them to maintain their systems. So that community uh, in, uh, in Patterson has an aggressive lead replacement option that hasn't been uh, really uh, accepted by the community because there's reluctance about what it does to their front yards. So it's a very complex issue. So even if you have the money, with the knowledge of the system, it doesn't mean that uh, the, the lead service lines are going to be replaced because it's private property and folks have to make decisions on their own private property. Under the current law and paradigm, you can have the knowledge, you can have the funding, but you still have to have private property owners make decisions about what happens on their private property. And even if we are experienced in New Jersey, even when there is money available, there hasn't been wide acceptance of that asset to solve the problem. Dan, I saw you shake uh, the other Dan, Dan Van Abs, Dr. Abs, Van Abs. Uh, I saw you shaking your head. Did you want to add something? Um, I think it's very interesting to note that in f that what ra rose, uh, what raised the Flint, uh, the lead issue was Flint, Michigan. You know, that's really what hit the papers in everybody's consciousness, and yet. Um, not very far away from Flint, Michigan, Lansing, Michigan is in the process of finishing up their citywide project to replace their lead service lines. So it is feasible to do this. It costs them uh, quite a ton of money, but they decided that it was the appropriate thing to do. Um, and they did that, of course, because they had previously had a lead issue, and that was their reaction to it. Washington, D.C., they are also replacing service lines. Why? because before Flint hit the papers, Washington, D.C. hit the papers. But we don't remember that anymore because we're focused on Flint. Mm -hmm. So they're responding to past issues. Okay, I'll try to get to another question from the audience. Um, 
And I guess this one goes into your uh, court, uh, Peggy. What advice can you offer local water and wastewater utilities who want to raise rates but lack the political will? Uh, yeah. Good luck. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's a, it's a hard problem. Um, that kind of gets me back to uh, my point about um, educating decision makers, um, and 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 quite honestly, when the DEP um, pushes asset management and and uh, the NJEIT uh, requires details about asset management on uh, its loan applications, um, and this is held as a, uh, as n not just a good, but a, a requirement. This gives the local uh, water system manager uh, some, some backing to go to the community and say, no, this is something we really need and it's really a priority. So that's an extremely helpful uh, thing from, um, from the point of view of the, uh, the local systems. And then, um, of course, uh, the advantage the local systems have is that they are um, within their own communities. And, you know, our association urges them to take advantage of that. Um, Atlanta County Utilities Authority has um, a big Earth Day event every year. Um, a number of the local systems involve themselves with their communities, and these are the times that they need to to talk about the importance of uh, managing their systems for the long term and not just for this year's budget. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's like a lot of what we've been saying. There's not an easy answer to that question. Um. Uh, Dennis mentioned on several occasions the BPU and how they regulate rates. One of the things that uh, the BPU in the past few years has done has passed something called uh, DISC. DISC, yeah, which I can't remember what it stands for, but it's a bit distribution charge. It allows water companies to uh, raise rates by a certain amount to get needed work done without going through a rate-making procedure. I'd, want, I'd like Dennis to uh, eventually address that and see how well that's working and does it need to be expanded. But uh, as from the wastewater side, would that help or is it just too little, too late? Well, I don't. I don't know if it's needed on the local level because they don't. They can. Um, they have. I think that uh, the difficulty um, that le that led to the disc was the perception that it, it was kind of like turning the, the the ship around. It took a long time to actually uh, realize this this um, needed revenue. But on the local level, you do have more flexibility. So, um, I, you know, I don't know that anything like that would be would be needed um, if the rates are structured properly. Okay, Dennis, how's that working out? Well, the, and the, has uh, Middlesex taken advantage of it? We do. Uh, the the disc or distribution and su distribution system improvement charge or D6, some people call it, uh, is in widespread use in a number of states around the country, and some disc mechanisms are, in my view, better than others. Meaning, we have one in our Delaware company. It also allows us to include uh, treatment equipment as part of 
the the, uh, the mechanism in New Jersey treatment equipment is not included. It's it's limited more to pipe replacement. It clearly, you know, back to honest discussions. It clearly creates a financial incentive for investor-owned utilities like ours to replace more pipe. The issue is we all need to replace more pipe in the older sister systems more aggressively than we have been, but given the rate-making mechanism, it becomes a disincentive to, to make those investments and, the, and then to go several years before you're able to recover that investment in your rate structures because it erodes your return and back to attracting capital and everything that goes along with that. I have friends in the industry in different parts of the company who had prided themselves on not going in for a rate increase for 12 years. And then the first time they go in with a 20% request after 12 years, they get slammed by the public and by their regulators for the large increase. They get no credit for all the, the work they did the prior 12 years. So the value in the disk, we find that customers are more willing and accepting of very small incremental increases periodically than getting hit with a large increase after a number of years. It's easier to sell politically, it's easier to manage in the household budget, and it certainly provides a financial incentive for utilities to do more quicker. So those are the benefits, those are the costs, and I think it's a, a great program and a great mechanism. I wish it were more, uh, more liberal in New Jersey than it is. And based upon the mechanism in New Jersey, some utilities are able to get more favorable treatment than others based upon what they've done. For example, our company, we've had a very active main cleaning and, main cleaning and lining program in effect for probably close to 20 years now. We don't get any credit in the disk mechanism for having done that work year in and year out. We get credit for all the incremental spending that we put above that amount. Uh, so we're at, a bit, we're at a bit of a disadvantage for having done the right thing for more than 20 years, but that's okay. It's still, customers are still getting replacement of these, these old pipes uh, on a more timely basis, and overall it's, it's working. Sure. Just also that the other, the, it's important to point out too that as asset management, we talk about uh, first step being inventory, but you know the, the um, many of our members are not just doing asset management in terms of you know counting the uh, assets and and knowing when they need to replacement, but they're actually doing the the active financial planning, you know, projecting out over many years what what do we need to do, how much is it going to cost, and how much are we going to need to collect in order to cover that. Uh, Mount Laurel is, is, is an example of one that, that has done that. So um, that also becomes part of, I think, the local dialogue uh, that, the, uh, that the utility has to have in order to uh, help people understand um, this is not just what we're doing now, but this is where we need to go. And uh, you have then that, that um, as Dennis said, that incremental um, change rather than these, these big you know, shocks that, that can be so hard, whether, uh, whether you're an investor-owned utility or a, a local utility, public utility, it's, it's very hard to justify when you come in with a 20% uh, rate increase. So these, these uh, thoughtful long-term plans also very much need to include a, a financial planning aspect. Okay, here's another question from the audience. Uh, they're seeking the panel's perspective on how we may include uh, public-private partnerships to pay for infrastructure repair and replacement. 
And Dan, if you went, Dan Kennedy, if you answer that question, would you address uh, Dennis's uh, point that he raised about maybe an investor-owned utilities ought to be able to participate in the environmental infrastructure trust program? Uh, <clears throat> sure, I will. Uh, so sticking with, say, for example, the stormwater CSO issue, knowing that CSOs are a big stormwater issue, um, I don't think anyone should be under the expectation that uh, the, the solution for some of these problems are going to happen just at the dime of the public, um, whether it's the ratepayers or some sort of grant from um, the federal or state government to, uh, to solve our problems. Um, so I think there's a huge opportunity because of the geography of where the CSO issue is and the demographic shift and the market interest in redevelopment of these areas is to have uh, the stormwater CSO issues and other water asset issues be resolved concurrently with redevelopment of our communities. Um, this can be done um, in ways under the municipal land use law with strong uh, local ordinances uh, to require uh, development ordinances and checklists that um, early on in the process, before it even gets to the DEP, to have some of the solutions built into the local development review process um, as projects come up block to block. Um, it's very hard to do stormwater design and solutions um, when you have a fully baked uh, project at the end of development, and which is when the DEP typically gets involved with stormwater projects. Um, so our best bet to get uh, more private investment in solving some of these more public issues is to have municipalities engaged under the context of their master plan and zoning and development review process to make sure that they are getting these solutions on the table during the genesis of these projects when these projects are at kind of a ball of clay stage um, and not a fully engineered site plan. Um, and therefore, we can negotiate these solutions up front. Um, these, uh, the EIT, and uh, I'll, I know I've just seen my friend David Zimmer in the back here, uh, the executive director of EIT. If, if anyone is in this, the room that's uh, looking to invest in water infrastructure and doesn't know David yet, uh, shame on you. You should know Dave and uh, make sure you introduce yourself to him. Um, but the EIT does offer what we call conduit loans, where if municipal governments uh, are willing to engage um, we are able to, uh, you know, get the, 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 the capital through the loan program of the EIT to facilitate private development when the city uh, or municipality basically backs the loan and embraces the process and embraces the project. So there is an opportunity uh, to get private investment uh, incentivized through the Environmental Infrastructure Trust when the municipality is in the middle of uh, municipality, county, some sort of um, appropriate um, agency that could engage with the EIT to get the private investment to solve public um, uh, issues. And that's gonna happen you know, piece by piece incrementally uh, over a generation of investment in communities and not some sort of one project's gonna fix the problem. So that's why it's so important to have good long-term control plans so you know what the opportunities are uh, to make those investments in the right places. Because um, so, in some situations, the solutions for CSO is enhanced treatment where the separation of the pipe might not be the solution. In some areas where it's, uh, separation of the pipe is the solution, you're gonna wanna make sure you're hap that's happening at a time when the road's being um, uh, dug up. And then when that road's being dug up, then you think about transportation. Then you think about streetscape. Then you think about bicycle access. You basically think about the complete um, and Green Street as opposed to just digging up these assets, uh, digging up these roads for one asset at a time. If you do it through the context of a planning uh, process with the long-term control plans is gonna seek to do, 
you're going to have the biggest bang for your buck with public and private resources. And it's very possible, but it's not possible to happen overnight. Uh, Dennis wanted to jump in. Sorry, Peggy. This, this may sound like anathema coming from a greedy capitalist like myself, but I don't believe that public-private partnerships are necessarily appropriate in every case. If you're a well-run, well-managed, well-capitalized system providing good service with reasonable rates, there's no reason to enter into a public-private partnership. Most that I've seen are happening for a couple of reasons. One, either politically, somebody wants to, to cash in, um, and that's really more in terms of an outright sale. Uh, but under an operating agreement, there's generally a problem that needs to be solved. You're not meeting permits. Um, you have big capital needs that you are unable to fund on your own. So you look to the private sector for that assistance. What I believe is not happening enough is that municipal officials who have responsibility, whether you're an authority or a municipality, who have responsibility for running systems, they're not being given good, honest information about their options. And there's no, it's, there's no rocket science behind the, the, the financial models in a public-private partnership. And there's no free lunch. If it, a privately owned company like myself were to enter into a, a long-term agreement, we identify the capital needs, we identify the O&M needs, we identify the risk, we share the risk and the reward appropriately with the municipal entity, and we get a return to the extent that we invest any capital in those systems. It's not rocket science. So it's, it could be perceived as the private sector is coming in and going to make a whole lot of money on the backs of uh, these existing customers. Um, we certainly earn a fair return for that work, but it's not necessarily a, a need that, that we become the operator if these systems are being maintained and, and run appropriately. Well, thanks for standing up for the free enterprise system, uh, Dennis. Well, we here at uh, NJ Spotlight are nonprofits, and we don't know much about it. Go ahead. Um, no, I, I'll stand up for the free enterprise system, too. I, uh, but um, I think that, um, I, I, and I, you know, that's actually uh, very often the point that we find ourselves making that um, what's needed is more information. Um, what uh, frustrates us is that sometimes the um, uh, the crisis of aging infrastructure gets used as a um, a rationale for rushing into um, agreements that are not very well thought out, whether that's um, selling a system or, or, or doing any number of things with a system. So it's really important to decouple the idea that uh, the infrastructure is aging, therefore we have to you know, the only thing we can do is sell the system. Um, the, you know, there's an important point about um, the, the, the pendulum has actually swung between private and public in, in the history of this country um, quite a bit from, you know, the early, the 19th century to now. Um, the difference about now in, in terms of the private sector involvement is that um, you, you know, there's, I think, more of an issue of local control because the, uh, the private companies that are purchasing the systems aren't necessarily companies that um, are as local as private companies used to be uh, when these uh, changes were made. So, you know, so I think that's a really important point for a local community to consider. Um, will we still have the local control? But uh, an another um, point that we try to make is that 
we also believe that public-public partnerships should be a consideration, that there may be small systems that can look around to their neighbors, uh, to other public entities that are near them, whether they're county utilities authorities, regional authorities, or just another municipality, that, that those kind of consolidations can also happen. The devil's in the details, uh, but local communities need to be entrepreneurial about looking at what's the best solution for us. And, um, uh, and that may even be an investor-owned utility, but they have to make the decision with all of the information and, uh, and with the understanding of what the rate impacts may be and, and what the issues of transparency and access to the people who are managing the system. These are all parts of the conversation. I think that's a very good point, uh, Peggy. Thank you. Um, our uh, friends at BPU would agree with you when it comes to First Energy in Jersey Central Power and Light. Um, Dan wanted to jump in. Yeah, um, just to build on the, the comments that you've heard before, there are two parts to this. One is that the public sector has always relied on the private sector. Um, it's very, very rare for a utility to build their own treatment plant with their own staff and their own equipment and so on. They contract out most of that to the private sector and that's perfectly appropriate. What is different about the public-private partnership, of course, is the, the equity end of things, the, the investment end from the private sector. And that leads to the second point, is that what I am finding from talking to people here in New Jersey and seeing the evidence elsewhere is that it takes just as much sophistication in the public sector utility to manage a public-private partnership well as it does to run their own system well. And so there's no way of just handing off the problem to someone else. You are, it's still yours. And the third part, is that no matter what, the ratepayers are going to pay for whatever is done, whether it's by the public sector, a public-private partnership, or the private sector. It all comes back home to roost on the customers. That's what they're there for, folks. <laughs> and they should expect that to be true. Thank you. We're running out of time, but uh, we, and I apologize, I didn't get to half the questions that well, we had. But does anybody want to, we have time for maybe a couple quick questions from the audience. Anybody want to say? My name is Paul Onder. I'm a licensed master plumber since 1985. The plumbing code didn't realize lead, taking the lead out of the water lines until 1987. So any structure that is built up to 1987, you can almost guarantee you have lead in your copper water lines. So that's a fact. The uh, other issue that I'd like to bring up is I'm a part-time teacher for Lincoln Tech Institute up in Mawa. We have an issue with uh, indoor air pollution and where I go with this is the uh, aerator. The aerator aerates air into the water as it comes out of the faucet, point of use. If you'd like a direction to start, I would recommend we start looking at point of use and the quality of water coming out at that point. Because of the fact of stagnated air, poor air circulation inside the home has created an environment of mold, mildews, 
and radon gases that are being filtered into your water. So um, because of the tightness of the homes. This is an issue that Congress took up, but they did not vote on it back in 2003. So um, I'm kind of just pointing out that the point needs to be drawn at where the point of use is, and we need to have more better laws recognizing this. If you have any comments, I'd appreciate it. There's one other question we have time for, I think, well, yeah. Hi, I'm an analyst at Moody's, and um, I had a question about how you value a system, a water system, in privatizing it or in buying it. Thinking specifically about Atlantic City, they've talked a lot about selling their MUA. Um, there have been some numbers thrown around, 100 million as to the purchase price, so I'm just wondering, how would they come up with that? How can we try to estimate a value ourselves? Well, as... <laughs> You guys aren't talked out, are you? As, as one who has acquired systems of various sizes over the course of my career uh, in a regulated environment and privatized uh, public-private partnerships in a non-regulated environment, um, the, the traditional approach to valuing the acquisition of a regulated utility is depreciated cost of the assets or book value is the starting point, the benchmark. Any premium that you would pay above that amount uh, is at risk that you will not get rate recovery from your regulators unless there's a really compelling reason as to why that premium should be should be reflected in the rates. Um, that's on the on the purchase side, and companies of of all kinds are willing to pay premiums in some cases to get market share with the hope that someday they'll be able to get rate recovery of those premiums. And that's a personal a, a specific decision that any, any entity needs to make. Um, what, as you, you're, everybody, I think, is well aware of the recent legislation in New Jersey, the Water Infrastructure Protection Act, which it, it, I'm a bit of an outlier, I think, on that one, and I'll say some things that I think are a bit controversial. Um, in my view, it, it upends the traditional rate-making process, and there are two aspects to that bill that I have concern, one I have a concern about, one I don't. It, it, it now allows um, systems to be sold without the need for a public referendum under certain conditions, which I don't think is a bad thing because I think the public, a lot of good deals have not gotten done for the benefit of the customer for the fact that they weren't adequately informed of the costs and the benefits associated with that privatization or that sale. Put that one aside, the portion that I do have a concern about is the rate-making aspect. Uh, here you have the, uh, the ability through what I'll call traditional um, financial analysis, which is present value of uh, um, you know, cash flows and other commonly known evaluation methods, where the value of a system may be something greater than book value or, or depreciated cost, which gives the acquirer potentially, this has not yet been tested in the state, potentially the ability to recover that premium in the rate structure. So what does that mean? It means you're taking that premium and you're spreading it across a broader customer base. So other customers are paying for that premium, which may or may not be the right number. 
in, in that scenario, you now have the private entity coming in and now makes, needs to make all those improvements that the system needed anyway. That also goes into the rate structure. So in my view, the customers are paying twice. They're paying for premiums and they're paying for the capital that needed to be invested anyway. That's just my view. I know uh, that that view is not shared universally. So I'm really anxious to see the first one come in and see how it's all being managed. And you know, I, I feel sorry for the Board of Public Utilities because they're faced with having to address the rate issues associated with the legislation. They need to do the right thing, they need to comply with the law, but they also need to make sure that these systems are being fair, ba fairly valued. And the flip side of it is, frankly, the municipal entity who sells that system at a non-traditional premium, in my view, is getting a windfall that they may or may not necessarily be entitled to if private entities like my company are willing to keep bidding up the prices with the understanding that we'll get rate recovery of those premiums. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. It sounds like a good story that I should follow. <laughs> and, and thank you, Dennis. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, what Dennis has, has just described is, um, is, I think, one of the reasons that Rate Council was so vehemently opposed to uh, the Water Infrastructure Protection Act, this concern that, uh, that under uh, situations where the system is um, designated designated as an emergent condition, um, which is a very, very broad set of uh, definitions, the system could then, um, th there could be then um, this sort of overbidding or overvaluation of the system, which um, is then to um, the disadvantage of um, the ratepayers and I suppose the shareholders too, in some senses. Uh, the, um, what happens in Atlantic City will be very interesting uh, for me uh, personally to see from that point of view um, if Atlantic City is somehow uh, designated as an emergent condition um, will that then um, uh, cause the um, sale of the system to be even um, you know be at an even higher price than needed um, a very tempting thing in many ways for the local officials uh, perhaps not so good for a city where there are already people struggling to pay uh, to pay their utility bills. So, um, so I think that's going to be a really key um, aspect of this conversation is whether Atlantic City uh, MUA uh, or Atlantic City itself is somehow um, uh, designated under WIPA um, an emergent condition. So the, the thing that I would like to add to this is that, <clears throat> and this goes pretty far away from the question, but it gets to the points that have been made, is that you have a situation where a municipality which means, therefore, its taxpayers are going to benefit from the sale of a system that was really paid for by its ratepayers, and they are not the same people. That's right. And so you have a diversion of money that was really, um, in part, from tax-exempt properties that will then be benefiting the taxpayers. And I've never seen that tested in court, as I've recently wrote in, uh, in my article. But I would love to see it tested as an illegal transfer of money from non from tax exempt properties to taxpayers. So it's a backdoor way of forcing them to pay taxes. Contact Food and Water Watch. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, we've run out of time. Um, uh, we could go on a lot longer. Uh, I just want to thank the panelists. I thought they did a fabulous job.
And Elise got a few loose ends that she has to tie up. Thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you very much, panelists, for being so candid. And um, as you can see, we are videotaping the um, roundtable today. If you know of someone who wished they could have been here or you think might find it useful, please, we'll, we'll be putting it up on our site, njspotlight.com, within the week. We'll also be doing a podcast. So um, if you know any runners or drivers that you think might be helpful, please point it, point it out to them. We also have a daily newsletter. I m neglected to say this at the beginning of all our stories that we uh, put up every day and if you'd like to get that we, you can sign up for it over there or you can just sign up for it on the on the site um, please I, I would love it um, thank you Tom for moderating I think you did a great job <clears throat> and thank you the audience for coming you've been great and I we didn't point out that Governor Florio snuck in in the back um, after we started, so uh, we have a greater audience here. So thank you very much, and thanks for coming. For more information, visit njspotlight.com. This program was produced for NJ Spotlight by statebroadcastnews.com, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.